you know, it took those leaders kind of coming together and putting purpose at the core and measuring that it mattered. And so you started seeing things and that's what's really changed is the research over the last 10 years has started to make the business case for ESG, the business case for sustainability, the business case for inclusivity. So for our own customers, we really focus on engaging employees and the sort of employee impact of ESG. And we've been able to demonstrate as high as 37 percentage point retention improvement for those companies who engage their employees in their ESG initiatives versus the retention rates of employees who don't engage in their ESG initiatives. And 37 percentage point difference in retention is transformational. And so when you can say by engaging your employees in sustainability, it's improving your customer retention and your revenue by billions of dollars, you know, people start to stand up and take Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we talk with Susan Hunt Stevens, founder and CEO of We Spire, Build a Better Working World. Welcome, Susan. Susan joins us from Newton, Massachusetts. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. ESG, that is environmental, social, and governance ratings, have become increasingly talked about and important in the corporate world. When did this all start? Like, And what was the impetus for corporates to move in this direction? There have been elements of corporate social responsibility, the idea that companies need to take care of the communities that they operate in, have strong environmental practices, be mindful of employees and a sense of safety and belonging for many, many years. What, however, really has happened is these issues went from being seen as the right thing to do, which made them optional, and often, therefore, were really only emphasized by certain visionary founders or visionary leaders in these companies, very optional, not talked about, to these issues actually being incredibly strategic to the ability of the company to make money, adapt, survive, what is coming in the future. I'm going to say it's the last 20 years, 25 years, but it's really only entered the mainstream in the last three to five years has been brands and companies really recognizing the value of putting purpose and impact at the core of their business strategy, not their citizen strategy. And so whether it has been truly purpose-driven brands from the core and the founding, like a Ben and Jerry's or a seventh generation or an Applegate Farms or Organic Valley, you know, many of those kinds of companies to large corporations like Unilever, who have recognized that from their founding, they were a purpose-driven business, but that purpose could be the guiding light, their North Star for their 2030 goals and their 2050 goals. You know, it took those leaders kind of coming together and putting purpose at the core and measuring that it mattered. And so you started seeing things from whether it was Sloan Business Review or Harvard Business Review, you started seeing the research. And that's what's really changed is the research over the last 10 years 
has started to make the business case for ESG, the business case for sustainability, the business case for inclusivity, which is why now every company is having to think long and hard about how they do it well. So if you had to give a percent of increased profitability, revenue, attracting right talent, the best talent to a company which is focusing on these practices, is there a ballpark percent increase, growth? So this is where it gets somewhat controversial because depending on the business and depending on the measure and the metric, you're going to get such wildly different answers. I can tell you what we've been able to demonstrate for some of our customers. And I'll tell you the business case that I hear when I'm fortunate enough to be in the front row of some pretty exclusive meetings around business purpose in the future. So for our own customers, we really focus on engaging employees and the sort of employee impact of ESG. And we've been able to demonstrate as high as 37 percentage point retention improvement for those companies who engage their employees in their ESG initiatives versus the retention rates of employees who don't engage in their ESG initiatives. And 37 percentage point difference in retention is transformational. Like if you said to a retailer, I could improve and and cut your retention rate by 37 percentage points, that literally is going to have millions and millions and millions of dollars of profit impact in numbers of ways. We've been able to show the link between sustainability through our clients and revenue and customer retention. And so when you can say by engaging your employees in sustainability, it's improving your customer retention and your revenue by billions of dollars, you know, people start to stand up and take notice. And so those are at the client level. What's happening at the more strategic corporate level is more fascinating. It is literally a conversation about your survival in the future and your license to operate in the future. That conversation is less today about it's this percent improvement or it's this percent improvement or this ROI or this balance. People get it. That research has been coming out for 10 years. What it's now looking at is if you don't have a strong climate strategy and plan You might not be here in 2035 or 2040 because your supply chain is going to be a disaster. Your buildings are going to have to get evacuated. Your key ingredients will not be available. Like your product will be banned. I mean, think about leading an oil and gas company right now as municipalities across the U.S. are banning natural gas for all new buildings. Survival. Exactly. So what you're trying to say is that the market is going in the direction and they have to adopt to survive. And for instance, if you go to Yahoo Finance, which has the the financial information of companies listed in the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and they never used to have the sustainability tab. And now there is a sustainability tab. Two years ago, many companies had the sustainability tab with nothing in it. Now, more and more companies actually have an effort to write something down. Maybe they were already doing it, but not vocalizing it, not quantifying it. But that brings us to the question of greenwashing. How do you know that they are not greenwashing? How do I know or how does the general public know? How do we know whether the message that they are communicating is actually authentic? How do we know it's not just greenwashing? 
So in reality, we don't at a general population level. And that's in large part because many of the frameworks that the companies report out through are still voluntary and are not regulated and are not consistent with how things are measured. In many cases, still best estimates by the companies. As an example, many, many, many companies have set 2030 targets. Only 13%, it may be a little bit more, that might be slightly a few months outdated number, but only 13% has set science-based targets. And so there's a huge difference between those who say, we're going to be carbon neutral, we're going to do this, and those who have science-based targets. Could you elaborate what exactly is science-based targets? So science-based targets provide a clear and defined pathway for companies to measure their carbon emissions and then identify their reduction opportunities in alignment with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So is that the scope one, scope two, scope three? So scope one, scope two, scope three is the different ways that you categorize your emissions. So scope one are those that come direct from operations. Scope two are those from your energy sources, your electricity purchasing, things like that. Scope three gets into your whole value chain, your employees, your customers. So my favorite story is when Levi's went out to measure their emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three. What they identified is that they had two huge areas of opportunity. One is how cotton is grown because that's a key material that's in their operations. The other is to change consumer behavior for how frequently we wash our jeans and the temperature of the water that we wash our jeans in. Wow. So their whole strategy, if they wanted to reduce their emissions in alignment with the Paris Accords, which is to be able to get them down to hold 1.5 degree Celsius increase, they had to go after those two areas. The three components of ESG, environment, social and governance. Most of our listeners intuitively can understand what are environmental impacts or social impacts, but what exactly is corporate governance? What is good corporate governance? So governance is a catch-all term for actually a number of very, very different things that would fall under it. First and foremost, it's going to be looking at ethics and business practices. And in one world, mean compliance. In another world, it can mean everything from how you operate, you know, from an ethical standpoint. So for example, we work with two very large gaming companies. The work they do to reduce problem gambling and reduce addictive gambling practices and educate employees about responsible gaming and what to do when and if they encounter someone they believe to have a problem with gambling, gambling would fall under governance and something they do because of the regulatory nature of being a gaming client. So there's a social impact, but it's a governance thing because it's tied into regulatory factors and compliance. So they are regulated to monitor this in case of gaming companies. What are other examples of governance? So another example would be cybersecurity and privacy would fall under governance. What are your practices 
that you follow to make sure you adhere to privacy principles globally, whether that's GDPR or the California rules or CAN-SPAM, which is about emailing, all the governance practices around privacy and then security. What are you doing to have good hygiene to protect people's data, protect their reputations? There's a lot into how you do data and data management. So if you think about some of the more famous recent data scandals um, involving some of the major social media companies, people would argue that was a failure of governance and that had there been stronger governance principles in these organizations around data and how data was used, they would not have run into the problems that they had. It also gets into things that cross over with social impact a little bit, but it's looking at boards and the way boards operate. That's kind of everything from board composition to looking at executive compensation and sort of the relationship between executive compensation and frontline employee compensation. So governance sort of touches on a lot of those issues, but it's essentially a lot around how are we structured as a business to ensure that we are behaving ethically, that we are complying with all rules and regulations, not just in practice, but in spirit. And how are we operating in a way that has transparency and clarity uh, around it? I read a recent article, I think it was in the Financial Times, about Jack Welch and how he was probably one of the early people who started saying that we have to appease the shareholders and was sort of responsible for the gap between what the top brass earns and the person on the shop floor. Jack Welch might go down as one of the most controversial CEOs in terms of lauded at the time for being an incredible, and then hindsight 2020, lots and lots and lots of questions. I don't think we can hold any one CEO responsible for the practices of corporate America. I think if you want to look anywhere, it's at institutional investors and how institutional investors were making decisions and how they weren't, and a sort of belief system that may have just emerged without ever actually being codified, although we are a public benefit corp. And one of the things that in going through that process, you realize is that a public benefit corp charter, which means that you are practicing stakeholder capitalism, not just shareholder capitalism, is in fact the model for capitalism in much of the rest of the developed world, you know, whether that's Canada or EU or whatever. The US is really only one of the only countries that sort of had this perspective that it wasn't about the stakeholders. And we didn't always have it. You know, it it kind of emerged. But if I had to invest in the capital markets, I would invest mostly in the United States. But actually, the irony is that has to do, I think, much more with our regulatory climate, our disclosure requirements. True. So what we did is ironically, even in a world of shareholder primacy versus stakeholder primacy, we created a system that brought the most transparency possible at some level to how businesses were running and required to run through the SEC, which is actually one of the things I love about the fact that the SEC, you know, whether it will withstand court challenges, we don't know, but the SEC is now taking a stand around climate disclosures and has put forward rules 
for how companies that are traded on the U.S. stock exchange will need to report on climate and scope one and scope two and scope three emissions if they're setting these goals. That is what this world has needed, which is to have a regulatory force like the SEC tell people how it has to be done. So we all have to do it the same way, share the same level of information, disclose depending on what we set our goals around how we're doing relative to those. And that is going to make, should that hold, that is going to add a level of both seriousness to companies around the importance of this, but most importantly, clarity for how it needs to be tracked and measured and reported. Because right now with 20 different standards and 15 different frameworks and different governing bodies, I feel for our corporate clients who have to prepare 10 different reports, you know, all in different formats, all asking different questions, not standardized. It's really a waste. And it gets back to that's how a company can get away with greenwashing because it's all voluntary. There's no standard and structure and it's not regulated through an authoritative body like the SEC. And this standardization would be similar to your financial statements. So it can be easily compared. Exactly. may have a template or a format where they have to follow. And that we all follow the same rules for better or for worse. You means you want to get the rules right. And this is where there'll be a lot of debates and a lot of bickering over what the actual standards are and what they need to be and what they conform with and what they don't. But I've been involved with the um, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board and trying to create what they call SASB, which is like FASB, you know, which is trying to make it so that there is a standard for how it's reported. And I think those standards, along with some standards that are coming out of the EU, will be will influence heavily how the SEC chooses to do it. So is this problem primarily in American companies or was it worldwide, but EU started changing sooner? It's a global problem. Whether you're headquartered in the US or headquartered in Europe or headquartered in Asia, if you're a multinational company, sort of doesn't matter. You have to comply with the regions you operate in, but Europe's ahead. Europe is very much ahead on the governance and the regulatory frameworks around these things, particularly in the area of climate and climate-related disclosures, but even in things like board composition. You know, Europe has more rules about representation, particularly for women on boards, for example, than the U.S. has. You know, and so there's just more regulatory progressiveness in Europe around these topics than the U.S. But the U.S. is catching up. And again, I think the most interesting thing to me is um, that one out of every $4 is now um, reported to be invested with some sort of ESG lens on Wall Street. That's transformative. That progressive liberal schools in the East Coast were asking their trustees to divest in 2013-14. And at that time, the trustees were throwing their hands up and saying, how will we ever make money on our trusts if we pull out of all these like oil and gas and other things that these students were protesting regularly? But now they have changed like eight years. They have changed and they are finding alternatives and they are, if people stop investing in these investments, the money stops and also start putting money into new climate initiatives, social initiatives. That will also help fund bring about this change. And of course, the regulatory requirement is, I think, actually really, really primary and very crucial to bring about any change. 
It is. And to make the change clearer and more transparent as it's happening. I'm going to go back to another social movement that will date me, but that happened when I was in college, which was divesting from companies that were connected to apartheid in South Africa. Students were agitating, asking for folks to do it. It finally became a movement. People started to do it. And it is one of many things that brought about the changes to South Africa. It's not the only thing, but it was certainly a part of that change. I remember not buying some brands of chocolate, which were from that area. Yeah, it was a consumer boycott. It was investor boycotts. It was all of this that forced a change. And yet, if you look at what's happened since apartheid ended, it is incredibly positive in some ways. And there are still extraordinary challenges that South Africa faces. I think the same thing is true around divestment movements, which is that on the one hand, they can certainly be part of what brings around the massive change that's necessary, but they are not sufficient for solving the broader problem. That is, I think, where there's some very smart people on both sides of this issue who debate the challenge related to this, because the reality is today is that if we wanted to be powered 100% by renewable energy tomorrow, we just don't have the capacity and we couldn't do it. So there's a transition that has to happen and it has to happen fast. I mean, really fast. And this is the part that if you are a hopeful person, you have believe in America, you believe in the world, you believe in our ability to adapt, you believe in our ability to be innovative and to be able to make this happen. And if you are a pessimistic person, you look at how much time we have left, you look at what we have to do, and you say, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And it's by definition going to have to get a lot worse to get people moving at the rate that they need to move to make it better. And taking a one size fits all approach to every company that produces energy in any way, shape or form might not be the most nuanced way to approach this because there are some really amazing innovations that are happening through these companies that sometimes get labeled you know, as bad. And then there are some companies that absolutely deserve that label in the space. And I think that's the challenge in clean tech broadly is that the asset holders, the people who have, for example, the oil and gas assets, it's trillions and trillions of dollars of assets we're asking people to strand, potentially a portion of, but it's also trillions of dollars that can go into innovation to bring around the solutions we actually need. So it is complicated and no student likes to hear that it's complicated. At the same time, I'm really supportive of that message sending through the investors because I actually think it's the only thing that moves markets. That's where my MBA comes in. When investors change, the worlds change. So when the students convince the investors, the investors will convince a corporate business to change. So you worked for the New York Times company on the digital side. How did you come about starting WeSpire? <laughs> it's a fun story. Very few people know that the New York Times was one of the pioneers in behavioral advertising and marketing. And I was the first head of marketing for New York Times Digital. And we really pioneered a lot of the behavioral advertising and marketing capabilities on the internet. And so that's been my background since literally 1998. When you say behavioral advertising, it gives nefarious note to it. 
Yeah. But when I think of New York Times, I don't view it with that angle. Yeah. When I think of Facebook, I do think of it at that angle. But oh no, we wrote the very first. I wrote the very first white paper on behavioral advertising and marketing. Okay, go on. Not all behavioral advertising and marketing is bad. It's what are you trying to convince people to do? So we were trying to get convince people to subscribe to the newspaper, to download our cooking app, you know, things like that that theoretically is going to make them more informed folks, live better lives, but it was the techniques we were using to do it. I then got very personally passionate about sustainability due to some food allergies that at the time my 2-year-old encountered that were pretty serious, and we had to change kind of everything about how we ate, how we lived to reduce exposure to chemicals in our air and water, things that were in our food, and I just got sort of personally interested in sustainability even way before inconvenient truth and was blogging about it and decided that I wanted to learn more and so I went back to grad school at night and got a certificate in sustainable design from the Boston Architectural College and while I was there sitting in a class on the lead system for green building It was a gamified system where architects and developers and designers and building owners and tenants made decisions to do sustainable actions, earned points and based on their points got an achievement for the building. And I kept thinking, why isn't there a system like this for people? Why isn't there some sort of like lead for daily living? Um and that was the original idea for uh we aspire and so it was really this idea of how do we educate people on what they can do to be healthier more sustainable put nudges prompts targeted content personalizations social network support all of this around that education to motivate and inspire people to be healthier and more sustainable and that was how we founded the company and that's the field that we still work in 12 years later what really changed was in 2012 companies started asking if we had an enterprise version we started as a consumer app and asking if there was an enterprise version and when we did a pilot of an enterprise version with the sort of first 6 7 companies what we realized it was even more effective in workplaces than it was in sort of a more personal social environment because people were both more open to changing behavior at work and also companies had a rational reason for doing it that kind of defied a lot of the politics it didn't matter it was good for business being sustainable helping employees be healthy it's good for business and so it took away all this if you're sustainable you're a hippie liberal kind of bias that sometimes we ran into in the consumer environment and so that has been kind of the most exciting part for me having a business background is seeing how engaging people in these programs has a really hard ROI and a hard business case around it and that's why you do it this isn't about political philosophies this isn't about the left or the right this isn't about anything it is about these behaviors create better performing workplaces and ultimately that is great news for society for the employees that work in the company and for those companies and so if you're going to invest look for that company that has really strong ESG scores and has really strong employee engagement scores because you're going to earn more on your money when you do that than you will if they have low employee engagement or low ESG so give us an example of one of the behavioral science tools that you use to change companies internal culture We use uh BJ Fogg's methodology which looks at any behavior that you're trying to influence and breaks it down into people's ability to do that behavior, 
their motivation to do that behavior and then puts nudges and triggers at the right time in the right place. Once ability and motivation are where they need to be to drive change, to get people to change. So depending on the behavior, let's take two, converting your home to solar or a workplace behavior, changing the way a housekeeper uses water when cleaning a shower in a hotel room. The first thing you have to do is you have to give the person the ability to make that change. Sometimes that's knowledge. Sometimes that's a process change. Sometimes that's the support. Sometimes that's the time. Sometimes that's, so it could be education. It could be prioritization. It could be anything that's related to giving me the ability to do this thing. Then you have to increase their motivation to do it. So why am I going to change my behavior? What's in it for me, essentially? That's where you get to be really creative in this environment. People do things for dozens and dozens and dozens of different reasons. And what you have to tap into is why. And that's where the construct we use is that there's two primary kind of motivators in any social network. There's a third that's important. Um, One is there's people who are motivated by achievement, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of progress and a progression. So game mechanics, points, leaderboards, achievement, structures, you know, things like that. Super effective for those folks, rewards, incentives, et cetera. There's another group of people who are highly motivated by the community and the social aspects of any sort of change. And so they are very motivated by positive feedback, by comments, by storytelling, by connecting with others who share their values, and much more around the social network benefits, essentially, which is why Facebook, Instagram, and everybody else has likes. That's a social mechanic that provides those socializers with a sense of validation for their behaviors. Very different than points. True. So that's a mechanism. And then there's a third group called explorers that are participating in a group and are motivated by kind of discovery and learning and things like that. And so it's how do I create that journey? We get people so they are able to do something. Then we get it so they're motivated to do it on a topic or a theme. And then it's putting the nudges and the triggers at the right time, the right place to get them to do it. And that could be reminders. It could be prompts, which look like notifications. It looks like an email. It looks like a a tag from a colleague. You know, there's all sorts of different ways you build in nudges and triggers to a digital experience um, or a real life experience. So some of our clients will put QR codes around certain things so that the people can hold up their phone when they take the stairs instead of the elevator. You know, they hold up their phone, they get the QR code, that's a nudge that then provides the positive feedback and the points for taking the stairs instead of the elevator, as an example. So you have solutions for different kinds of people, for different kinds of behavioral outcomes. If I was a business I would approach Respire, get a demo, and you customize the solution to me. And all this is digital. There's like nobody. There's not a mentor. There's not a psychologist who's coming on site to say, hey, this is what you have to do. Well, here's what I would tell you is that there's no digital product on this planet that doesn't have people involved in it in some way, shape or form. It's just the role that they play. And so there is a psychologist, there is a content designer, there is a program strategist on the WeSpire team. It's just their thinking and their planning is getting expressed out through a digital product or service to nudge or prompt or encourage one of our platform provider, you know, one of our customers to be able to do things. But we also have customer success 
And every client gets a customer success person who's assigned to make sure their programs are successful. That person is helping them with content strategy, comm strategy, business reporting, outcomes reporting, all those kinds of things. So WeSpire is definitely a combination of the technology to help you design, deliver, and measure your programs through your existing comms channels. So we are trying to plug into your intranet, your mobile apps, your email systems, you know, your HRIS systems, all of that. So your employees have never really heard of WeSpire generally. You'll be participating in a program called Cox Impact or Akamai Spark or something like that. And the programs change all the time. The platforms that you deliver them through is what stays the same. And then as an employee, I'm participating and signing up for this event or giving activity or campaign or competition on my phone, generally, sometimes at my desk, if I sit at a desk. So what are some of the companies are you able to share? Yeah. Yeah, So we've done case studies with a number of our clients that are on our, our website and who've been very, very successful in, in different ways. One of the companies that had just did an incredible job with their sustainability program was NGM Resorts. And it was a combination. They just have an incredible sustainability strategy broadly, but they really worked on the employee engagement component very long, very hard. They had over 60% of their employees participating in the program. And they were doing a combination of general programs and awareness building for being sustainable more broadly, but they also had role-based programs that were really working with different types of work workers to help them understand what kinds of things they could be doing to be more sustainable in their roles. The other thing they did that was very groundbreaking is they really saw the intersection between sustainability and inclusion and diversity. And so they also brought all of their diversity and inclusion affinity groups and programs into their program as well. And in fact, Jyoti Chopra, who is this chief people officer at MGM also owns sustainability and social impact, you know, so they really see that people are the heart of delivering on their sustainability and their impact and inclusion goals, which in turn really affects the guest experience. As a person of color, I wanted to talk more about DEI and inclusion. Often this is told to me by someone from the privileged class they think DEI is Boolean. When somebody else gains, they lose. As I like to say, they think it's pie. Exactly. So for somebody to benefit, somebody else has to lose. It is not pie. Tell me why it's not the pie. Because the number one driver of high-performing teams and therefore high-performing companies thanks to Google's extraordinary research on this in partnership with Wharton and Adam Grant, who's a WeSpire advisor, um, was part of this research as well. The number one factor for high-performing teams is psychological safety. What DNI does is it provides a level of inclusion and belonging for all that done right, that drives psychological safety. And if you don't have strong DNI programs, you will always be in a situation where people who are in the minority in your culture do not feel as psychologically safe as people who are in the majority. And in some cultures, men are in the minority. In some cultures, the traditional racial class might actually be in the minority. And so recognizing that it's about majority and minority in cultures 
and how everybody can feel psychologically safe and be able to answer sub questions about how they bring their, their whole selves to work. Amy Edmondson from Harvard did just amazing work on these seven questions and the key drivers. What we really look at is first and foremost, do your employees feel psychologically safe in general? So I wanted to interrupt uh, for a second. You're talking about the minority class or minority, what is the correct word to use, Tommy? It really depends on the culture. I think one of the things we tend to talk about with DNI is we just assume that women are in the minority in a business and people of color are in a minority in a business. If you're at a hospital, men are in the minority, interestingly enough. And so I think that's one of the reasons why when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I talk a lot about diversity and inclusion for all because Every business is different as to who's included, excluded, in the house, out of the house. When I was at the New York Times, it was union, non-union. So we talked about insecurities. So the minorities have their own set of insecurities. And people who are in the majority, they have their set of insecurities. How do you kind of manage that? And as a leader of a company, I am for inclusion. I say we have as diverse as versatile, very talented pool. But to get that pool to actually understand each other, whether it is deliberate or whether it's conscious or subconscious, how do you change that? It's kind of baffling me, honestly. I want to separate for a second diversity and inclusion because I think they're very, very different. And I will be the first to say that We Spire focuses on inclusion and belonging because it's behavioral. It's how we treat each other each and every day in our interactions. And as we interact with each other, are we making sure people feel safe to take a risk, bring their whole self to work, you know, the seven questions. And that's behavioral. Diversity answers the question of, do we have a representative population at all levels that we are wanting and intending to have? And if we don't, why not? And what are we doing about it to some extent? And the two are obviously intrinsically connected, but diversity can get and is often addressed in an organization by deliberate efforts around recruitment and retention and talent development. And it's being very mindful about what I hear, for example, from clients is we want to make sure that there's gender equity and leadership by 2025. And they'll set a goal that looks at gender equity and leadership, or they'll say, we want to be representative of the U.S. population in terms of racial composition. And those are kind of metrics that they're trying to get to and they try to get to with a whole set of things. Inclusion and belonging is about the experience people have in being recruited into the organization, staying in the organization and growing in the organization. And our experience in the research that we've done with some pretty large, pretty prominent, particularly one of the world's largest consulting firms, is you can be stellar on diversity and still be terrible on inclusion or diversity practices. And, and But if you're terrible on inclusion and belonging, you will never hit your diversity goals. I'd like to put forth this analogy where you're invited to a party would be diversity. When you're asked to dance would be inclusion. 
And it can go even a step further, which is when you are taught to dance, that's equity. So you are not only invited to the party, asked to be a part of the party, you're given the skills to be successful at the party. That is really where, in my experience, having worked at organizations like the New York Times who were so committed to diversity, and I led the diversity council there, and our clients that we've worked with who really are some of the, have the best practices around diversity, many are still struggling to have gender parity in leadership, to have equity in talent development and growth. And I think what that ultimately gets to when we dig into the research with them is that they haven't cracked inclusion and belonging. And as a result, there are major differences in psychological safety between those employees. And that ultimately is highly predictive of being able to hit those diversity goals. And so you have to do everything related to diversity. Absolutely. That's table stakes. And it's not easy to always keep that in the front mind and to not make have people feel like it's pie <laughs> and then that somebody has to lose for somebody to win. What inclusion and belonging does is it starts to break down those barriers and it increases psychological safety. And what I love is that if you're improving psychological safety in your workplace, you're benefiting everybody because you make a better experience for everyone in the organization when you're focused on psychological safety and you're creating a higher performing team in the process. And that makes people of all backgrounds feel very good. And I think a lot of the social interactions or even professional interactions that people have in the American culture is creating bonds by exclusion. You create bonds with a few by excluding. Case in point, the finals club, which led us to Facebook, right? The creation of Facebook or the sororities or the fraternities or the secret societies in some of the schools. So they are all creating networks by exclusion. And that's so ingrained in our culture. In our culture, it may, it may even be in our DNA at some level, you know, that it was that we survived by tribing and protecting our tribe at the expense of other tribes. It's probably even deeper than that. What's interesting is that you can also look at cultures that have put more inclusivity in their core than other cultures who have been more successful than others. I'm not saying that any society is utopian on this front, but if you actually think about one of the things that has that is a potentially a myth in America, but it's certainly a powerful myth. What's certainly a powerful is that idea. It didn't matter how you were born. There was no caste system in America. It didn't matter which country you came from. Now it did, because if you were a slave versus non-slave, but this idea that actually we were much more egalitarian than many of the places we came from. Much more meritocracy-based. And much more merit-based and things. And we thrived when other areas struggled because of that and because of that beacon, which is why I think aspirationally continuing to push the inclusivity knob is probably one of the most important things you can do for competitive advantage. My next question to you is, why stop at corporate America? <laughs> why not go to the high schools? I find so many folks who have been out of high school for 20 years wounded 
by their high school experiences. Yeah. As a small company, you have to make really, really difficult trade-offs. And when we looked at the opportunity even to go to the colleges, let alone high schools, it just wasn't clear that there was the financial commitment because they're not for-profit organizations. So it's a spiritual commitment to these things, but it's hard for them to invest and spend money on technology. And there was this real question in the colleges of who would own this? Is it for the faculty? Is it for the students who would run it, who would own it? They didn't have that governance structure that we rely on in corporate America of that chief responsibility officer, a chief people officer coming together, perhaps even with their CFO, to say this is important. But those could be future steps as... Absolutely. Someday. <laughs> culture and as colleges spend more money on mental health care for their students and counselors, I'm like, try to... As there's, as there's more recognition that this matters. Yeah. Try to prevent the problem than trying to throw some solutions at it on a hat hoc level. Get to the root of the problem. We are seeing campuses embrace sustainability broadly. And certainly there's volunteering. Certainly they just, there isn't that equivalent of a chief responsibility officer yet in most. It's starting. I think it will get there and will evolve as we do when it does. They're just not, the readiness isn't there yet. And in high schools, that's going to become a really interesting, let's just say education is highly political right now. And Joel Macauer from Green Biz wrote an incredible piece just talking about the forces that are kind of attacking ESG because it's now actually making an impact. And so it's count your blessings if you're an ESG professional, what you do finally matters, but be aware it's a little bit like kicking the hornet's nest. Thank you so much, Susan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. It's been a pleasure to have you on my show. Oh, it's been wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Iyer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, Share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Roseanne Korean. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pastricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.